you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, first book of the New Testament. Uh, For the last four months, we've been working our way through the book of Job. And next week, we begin a brand new sermon series for the book of Romans. Um, But I didn't want to go right from the end of one very rich, dense, powerful book into, uh, into Romans. You know, Romans is, is so rich that you kind of need a little bit of time to at least get ready for it. And so uh, I wanted to take uh, just sort of this is a, a transitional message, you might say, in between two expositional series. And I was just thinking about this the other day. In 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, I've never preached through the book of Romans. I don't know why. I'm not sure why it's never happened, but uh, we're going to get into it next week. And I'm, I've started doing a little bit of prep already, and I can't wait to see what the Lord does. As I've shared with you before, Janine and I like watching uh, television shows together at the end of the night or the end of the day, and kind of one of our favorite times of the day is after we've had dinner together, all together as a family, if we can, if it's possible. Uh, you know, we get things cleaned up and the last chores are done, so we go upstairs, we, you know, before we pop some popcorn, we bring it up, we just sit there and just kind of relax for a little bit uh, watching a television show. And when we finish one series, you know, whether it's on Netflix or Hulu or Prime or whatever it is, we'll, we'll try to find a new series. And, you know, it's, it's hard to find good things to watch these days. Um, but when we finish one series, we look for another one. And, and it always bugs Janine that I'll, I'll, I will research to death um, whatever new series that we might watch. And she'll say, you know, she'll say, I'll say, well, I don't want to waste time. So I want to, you know, find out uh, what the critics are saying and what's highly rated and so on. And she said, you don't want to waste time. You'll spend more time researching a show than we actually spend watching a show. Um, but, you know, I, I just I want to get a sense for what I'm going to be spending the next, uh, you know, a few days or weeks or whatever it is watching. Reviews help me, again, make sure that, you know, to the best of my ability, I'm watching something that is of value. Well, not that you need it, You certainly don't, because we are talking about the very Word of God here. Let me just give you an idea of what you have to look forward to over the next few weeks. I'm going to give you some, quote, reviews of Romans. Uh, The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. So Martin Luther, as you may know, had some issues with the book of James. It wasn't his favorite. Had some, uh, had some favorite books, but his favorite book of all was uh, the book of Romans. Uh, his uh, fellow disciple, kind of companion in ministry, Philip Melanchthon, said Romans is the compendium of Christian doctrine. So you look at the, the, the distillation of Christian doctrine and you see it in the book of Romans. 16th century Scottish theologian John Knox Uh, said Romans is unquestionably the most important letter ever written. Now think about some of the letters that have been written over time, you know, throughout history. John Knox, uh, the father, the so-called father of Scottish Presbyterianism, says it's the greatest letter ever written. Uh, 19th century French theologian Frederick Godet says Romans is the cathedral of the Christian faith. And then the Billy Graham of Britain Evangelist G. Campbell Morgan says, Romans is the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested, and yet the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, fascinating story. We don't have time for it today, but uh, he died at 82 and, and uh, always constantly learning and growing. And he'd been to, he was in the United States many, many times, dozens of times preaching, 
held these big revivals and so on. And, but at 80, so he died at 82. At 80, he'd been a longtime dispensationalist. And at 80, two years before he died, he said, you know, I've gotten this wrong. And he became embraced sort of covenant theology. And we're not going to get into any of that, only to say, um, you know, it's good to constantly be learning and growing and studying and searching the scriptures and uh, to be always uh, open to the Spirit's work. Well, the, 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 I've given you a couple you know, so-called reviews of Romans, but the, the impact of the book of Romans has been incalculable over uh, the ages. So many people have been brought to saving faith through the study of this book. Uh, Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century, who was a favorite theologian of many of your the, uh, favorite theologians, uh, was brought to saving faith uh, by reading Romans 13. Uh, in the year 386. Uh, Martin Luther was converted some 1,200 years later uh, after reading Romans 1. He was actually already uh, serving in what we might call vocational ministry, full-time ministry as a monk. He reads Romans 117, and he's just gripped and actually puts his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, John Wesley trusted Christ on May 24, 1738, after hearing Romans read and after hearing Luther's commentary on it. Um, the list goes on and on. This book's been incredibly influential over the years, and we're going to get into it next week. But this week, I was thinking, so what do we do in between a four-month series of Job and, uh, you know, six- or seven-month series in Romans? And, and you know, we've, in Job, we've, we've kind of learned or given a paradigm, you might say, for how to suffer. Now, I realize, as I said in that series, that the books of Job is not about how to suffer necessarily. It's about the wisdom and the sovereignty and the power and the mercy of God but we do have a paradigm for suffering. Um, but I thought about why don't we address the question because there's so many people asking it, not just about suffering, but so many people say, What's, what is going on in our world? Like I, I see, I, I read the news and I hear, and I, I cannot make sense of what is going on in our world from the seemingly weakling shootings. And I read one late last night, right before I went to bed, just happened to flip over the news app and saw yet another Another shooting um, from individuals who, who are every, everybody being canceled to endless political debates to the moral decline we see. I hear people say all the time, what is happening in our world? Well, again, Job gave us a paradigm for dealing with suffering, but what do we do when it seems like our world has spun out of control? I want to look at a, a beautiful scene featuring Jesus and the disciples from Mark four, or Matthew 14, rather. And I want to answer the question, what does it look like to exercise faith in the middle of a storm? And where do we find strength when the waves around us seem to be crashing in? So Matthew 14, and we'll cover verses 22 through 33. Let me begin by reading roughly the first half of the section. The word of the Lord reads this way, beginning of verse 22. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went uh, up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. I'm going to pause there because you know, it's kind of interesting the way Matthew records this. It's, it, it, it's two miracles, essentially. 
uh, Jesus walking on the water, which is the first one. The second miracles we'll see in a minute is Peter walking on the, on the water. And it's a story that unfolds in two separate acts, but each act has the exact number of Greek words. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it is fascinating the way that it is recorded. The first act centers on Jesus. The second act centers on Peter. Really still Jesus, but Peter is the one uh, who's in the crosshairs. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, word about him has spread everywhere. So everybody knows about Jesus. And whether you are in Jerusalem or Judea or in that little area there, or whether you've made it to, you live in the Decapolis, the 10 cities, or somewhere in one of the Roman cities, everybody knows about Jesus. And he really is, by all accounts, a true celebrity at this point. I mean, people want to be near him. People just want to touch him. People want to just touch his clothing. People want to be anywhere Jesus is. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see him perform a miracle. Now, it's not all noble motives, but people want to be around this guy and do everything they can to be there. So much so that it's really hard for Jesus to be alone anywhere. He can't really find, if he's going to be alone, he has to kind of sneak away into a secluded area. Thousands of people crowd around him wherever he turns. He ministers to them, showing his mercy. He teaches them about the kingdom and he feeds them, uh, which is the, the uh, story that precedes this one. And then the section that I just read tells us that after feeding a crowd of, well, it's 5,000 men, so who knows, 15, 18,000 people with just a few loaves of fish and or, or, or bread and fish, Jesus sends the disciples away into a boat. He tells them to sail to the other side, which is where they just come from, and all the crowds had followed them from. And then he dismissed the crowds and he went up on a mountain to be alone and pray. Now, as a side note, I think it's telling that Jesus prays after his ministry as well as before. And I think, and I'm really grateful to see, I think we're growing in in desperate prayer as a church. And I hear about more pockets of people praying together and people praying, you know, in small groups. Uh, Craig just led us beautifully through a prayer this morning. Um, But when we pray for events or ministries, we almost always, we tend to pray before. That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. But how often do we pray after a ministry that God would actually cause a lingering effect by the gospel's power? I had a gospel conversation this week that was totally unexpected. I I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't I didn't think it was going to happen. Again, I wasn't preparing for it. It was totally out of the blue, at least from a human perspective. And I prayed about that every day this week afterward, just that God would, would cause gospel fruit, that God would cause my words to linger in this person's ear. But even more than that, of course, that God would cause his own words to really sink in, that the Holy Spirit would illumine this person's eyes so that he could see. Jesus has just demonstrated in the feeding of the 5,000 that he has power and the ability to satisfy satisfy all of our needs, material needs and spiritual needs. Um, But then he takes the time to pray afterward that God would bear much fruit from his teaching, comforting and healing ministry. Now, again, that's not the main point of the ministry, but I do think it's certainly worth noting that, you know, we, we pray before we have conversations and we pray after that God would cause gospel fruit. So I emailed uh, a friend even this week, really struggling, and church is going through all kinds of horrible things. And I just said, I'm really praying that God would allow you to see gospel fruit for your encouragement and for the good of those that God 
uh, would work in. Uh, So Jesus goes uh, to pray, and then evening came, and he was there on a mountain alone, which is a pattern of Jesus. Matthew tells us that the boat with the disciples in it was still a long way from the land because it had been beaten by the waves and held back by the wind. And it's the fourth watch of the night, which in Roman timekeeping was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's very early in the morning, maybe 3 a.m., maybe 4 a.m., who knows. But there's this boat that is struggling. They're not making any progress. Now think about how this unfolded. On a normal day, it would have taken the disciples perhaps four hours to get across this part of the sea. But here they start out at about 8 p.m. The text tells us immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. It just had gotten dark. So 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m. It, it, it just goes on. And they're not making any progress because the storm is so strong. After eight or nine grueling hours, I mean, can you even imagine the exhaustion The disciples were stuck in the middle of the lake, dirty, drenched, despondent, probably on the verge of giving up, saying, well, we're just going to, at this point, just float wherever this thing goes. They were that exhausted. They're on the verge of giving up. And then they look out over the dark waves, and they see Jesus. Only they don't know it's Jesus. They They certainly don't think it's Jesus. They think what they're seeing is a ghost. And so they cry out in fear. We can hardly blame them, really. Have you ever seen anybody walk on water? I mean, it's not something you would normally see. There was so much they didn't understand. In some ways, they were still hard-hearted. In fact, one pastor and theologian writes, they understood Jesus miraculously broke the loaves so hungry people would be satisfied. They didn't understand that Jesus himself was the bread of life. And he himself must be broken so hungry souls would be satisfied. They understood Jesus had power, but didn't understand he was power. They understood Jesus was from God. They did understand Jesus was God. Now look at what Jesus says to them again in verse 27. He said, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now literally, the Greek, ego, I mean, Jesus says, take heart, do not fear, I am. He says, I am. In words that harken back to Exodus 3, where Yahweh appoints Moses as his leader and spokesperson, and Moses says, well, what do I say when they ask me, okay, who was it that sent you? Moses says, or God says, tell them, I am has sent me to you. What Jesus does is he invokes the divine name. This is no ordinary greeting. This is intentional. This is not... uh, Simply some sort of passing phrase. This is a proclamation of divinity. The divine Lord addressing his beleaguered followers. Jesus does something that only God can do. As we're going to see in just a moment. Um, but he makes it clear to his disciples and us that he, as God in the flesh, has, not only has the power to bring in the kingdom of God, which he does, not only that he is the sovereign king, but he has the power even over nature to restore calm out of the storm. And he wants them to know their anxious and fearful hearts that God is with them. God is with them in the flesh. They are in the presence of God, and because of that, they have no need to fear. Here's our first point from what we've seen today. The Lord 
stands with us in our trials and sustains us by his comforting presence. This is what Jesus wanted the disciples to know by his greeting, by his approach, by the very fact that he went to them by walking on water. And it's what he wants us to know as well. We are never alone when we're hurting. We are never alone when we are confused, when we are anxious, when we are afraid. God is with us. And so there's no need to fear. It occurred to me that about halfway into my ministry, maybe 10 or 11 years in, that I talked a lot about Jesus' life on earth, a lot about his death in our place, a lot about his resurrection, even his ascension, all things that I should be talking about a lot as a pastor. But it also occurred to me that I didn't talk much about what Jesus is doing now. In fact, it was just, I don't know, just an oversight, you might say. I rarely talked about what is Jesus doing right now. After all, uh, you know, he died, he was raised again. He didn't then sort of disappear on some sort of vacation until he returns again. He's actually at work even now. Um, so I made some adjustments, decided this is something we need to talk about. Um, right now at this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in a real physical body, in a real physical body, at the right hand of God. He is preparing a place for us. He is praying for us. He is interceding for us. He is ruling the world by his power. But as God, he is omnipresent. So physically, he is next to God right now, next to the Father. But spiritually, he is with us. We are united to him, with him. He is present even now. He is as present with us now here as he is in heaven only in a different way, which is, of course, our great comfort when we are anxious, confused, fearful. I think, I mean, isn't one of the worst things in life to go through something horrible, not just to go through something horrible, but to do that and feel like we're totally alone, that nobody, nobody understands us, nobody gets us, nobody is with us, nobody has been through what we've been through, we are there alone. Now, on the flip side, isn't it, tremendously helpful when we are going through a devastating time in our lives to know that, that there's someone who's actually with us, that we have someone who loves us and cares for us and gets us. I heard a lady recently tell the story of losing her brother, and he was only in his late 40s, so it was just a tragic thing. And she said when she lost her brother, she went into a really dark place, I mean, understandably, and because of that, she said, people started to avoid her because they just, you know, they, they didn't know what to say. And so they thought, I mean, they never articulated this, I'm sure, but they thought, well, I'm just going to kind of stay away lest I say something wrong. Uh, so she said she spiraled even deeper and deeper into grief, despair and loneliness, sort of exacerbated by her isolation. She said a friend of hers sent her a text and said, I'm outside your house right now where I'll be for the next hour if you want to come, if you want me to come and sit with you. If you don't, no worries. And she said she ran out of her house to see her friend. And her friend just hugged her and said, I'm here. That's all she said. That's all she said. She said, I'm here. And then after a while, her friend, the one who'd lost her brother, said, I'm so angry right now. Why did I lose my brother at such a young age? And her friend who'd come to comfort her and grieve with her, she said, I know. 
I don't understand, but I'm angry with you. The comforting presence of another. A, couple of year, a few years ago, uh, well, actually, yeah, recently, my, one of my former professors at a school in Chicago moved to Birmingham to become the dean of the uh, seminary, Beeson Seminary, and uh, he, phenomenal, phenomenal professor, probably the smartest man I ever met, written 20, 25 books, the world's foremost expert on Jonathan Edwards. And so he left the Chicagoland area, went there, but I, and I, and I had him I had him as a professor in, I don't know, 2001, so 20 plus years ago. I don't remember anything he said about Jonathan Edwards. I really don't. I'm ashamed to say. I don't remember anything he said about Jonathan Edwards. I only remember one thing he said that comes to mind immediately. I'll never forget. He said, and this was, I don't think this was scripted or part of the class or part of his notes. I don't know why he went there, but he said, when my wife and I lost our child, our first child, uh, preborn, he said, here I was, seminary professor, you know, published author. He said, no one came near us. No, everybody was afraid, I think, he said. Everybody was afraid to come near us because they thought, well, what if I say, say something that's not theologically correct? Or what if I say something that doesn't sound right? Or, and so he said, we were completely alone. He said, what we needed more than anything else is someone just to love us enough just to come and say, I'm here and more importantly, God is here. God is with you. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He is here right now with you. And my professor said, we didn't need somebody to bring some sort of new theological insight. We didn't, we didn't want to read a research paper on some new... No, we just needed somebody to tell us, to remind us, to reiterate for us what we already knew to be true. But just we, we weren't thinking about it at that moment, and that was that God is with us. The presence of God is here. When we're struggling, when we're afraid, when we think, I don't know how this is all going to end. I don't know what's going to happen with my life, with my family, with my relationship. We need someone just to be with us, someone to provide a comforting presence. And in this story, we see that the Lord himself stands with us in our trials he meets us where we are, with tenderness, with mercy, with power. When we look around and we see all that's going on in our world, and we're tempted to despair. In Christ, God shows up and says, I am is here. It may look like there's no hope for our world. It may look like things are just completely spiraling out of control. There's no sovereign hand behind it. But... Right now, God is here. He is sovereign. He's working out His sovereign plan. And He delights in coming to the aid of His people. Now, it's hard to be still when you're in the middle of a storm. We want to see action. So look at the last part, or the next part of this, verses 28 through 30. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I want to pause there for a moment. If you recall anything about Peter, you know that he's the disciple who's always getting in, into trouble. He's the one who's always saying dumb stuff. He's the one that actually, at one point, Jesus looked at him and said, Looking at Peter, he said, Satan, get behind me. So you never 
want to have Jesus look at you and, and say that. Well, here, he can't wait for Jesus to get into the boat. I mean, Jesus is, he's right there. He's, he's approaching the boat. Peter can't wait. And so he says, hey, Lord, let me come to you. And of course, the rest of the disciples, I'm sure they're saying, why, Peter? Like, look how close he is. He's right there. Why do you have to be so extra? Just sit there and relax for a minute. He's almost to us, but Peter can't. He just can't stand it. So he says, he, he, he sees Jesus and he says, Lord, if it's, you, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Throughout history of biblical interpretation, it's really interesting when you look at this, this request by Peter. It's been, I guess, perceived or interpreted in a variety of ways. There's a huge spectrum. Some people say this was an act of complete, uh, this was faithless. Uh, this was, you know, some people say this is a terrible thing. Uh, some people say this was an act of faith. And again, all over the place. In the 16th century, John Calvin criticized Peter for his impetuosity. He says, by Peter's example, believers are taught to beware of overmuch rashness, of transgressing limits. And so Calvin would say, no, Peter just needed to sit tight. Just chill for a minute. Just relax. Just wait. Jesus is coming. Uh, some commentators have even gone so far as to say that what Peter did in saying, Lord, if it's you, is like Satan's statement when Jesus in the wilderness, if you are the Son of God. In other words, it was sort of a, it was a questioning, defiant tone. Um, so there are some who state that explicitly that Peter is wrong in what he said to Jesus, but I don't see it that way. In fact, I don't see any hint of in Jesus' response that he was bothered by or offended by Peter's request. In fact, one could argue that it was an act of faith on Peter's behalf. I think it was an act of devotion. I think Peter was so eager to see Jesus, his friend, his Savior, his Lord. He just wanted to be close to Jesus. And Peter doesn't say, after all, command me to walk on water. He says, command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. Remember, this is in the middle of a raging storm, the kind that causes boats to capsize, the kind that causes tremendous waves. One uh, Israeli scholar, now a lot of this is speculation, but uh, surmises that the waves might have been as high as 30 feet, 30 feet high. Again, we're not really told, but we are told that the boat was being beaten by the waves and wind. Peter is willing to step out of the boat in such conditions. Fourth century Bishop Augustine, whom I mentioned earlier, commends Peter. He says, his trust, whence was it? Not from anything of his own, but from what was the Lord's. And I believe that Peter actually demonstrates faith here, genuine faith, and we could even say incredible faith. He actually believes, otherwise he wouldn't have gotten out of the boat, that he himself is going to be walking on water. Now, what happens when Peter gets out of the boat? He actually starts to walk on water. This is miraculous. This is supernatural. This, this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. He's out there on the water taking one step after another. In fact, he made it all the way to Jesus, but then what happens? Well, he starts to look around, and he sees the wind and the waves, and he starts to sink. Now, what was his fundamental error? He took his eyes off of Jesus and started to survey his surroundings. 
He started to look at other things. He started to notice, who, who knows, that maybe his feet were getting pelted with water. Uh, he started to pay too careful attention at how he was doing. Paid more attention to his surroundings, the events taking place around him, than the person and work of Jesus. And he started to sink. And I think this can happen so easily to us as well. As I mentioned at the outset, there's so many things going on in our world that we, we can't understand. They're, you know, they're frustrating, they're infuriating, they're bewildering, whatever you want to say. And I think we can get so distracted and discouraged by the trajectory of our world that we actually no longer are looking at Jesus. We're no longer, no longer thinking about the comforting presence of Jesus. Um, but we're just, you know, the podcasts and the news outlets, they, they get us worked up into a lather. And we just realize that our focus is just on the world around us. And when that happens, of course, fear and anxiety overtake us. Again, frustration and all the things that I mentioned happened to Peter. But Jesus doesn't let Peter fend for himself. He doesn't teach Peter a lesson. This is what you get for looking around. No, look what he does in verses 31 and 33. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So immediately, we're told, Jesus reached out his hand, took hold of him, reached out, and he grabbed Peter. Now, here's, this is such a beautiful thing. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. I'll talk about that phrase, you have little faith, in a minute. He doesn't chastise. He, in fact, reaches out and moves closer. Here's our second point this morning. Jesus doesn't shrink back from us when we struggle with doubt. He draws even closer with tenderness and strength. We talked a little bit about this last week in Job. And, you know, for the Christian who violates God's commands, we, 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 we should experience guilt. We should experience remorse. We should experience sorrow. And as we said last week, if you are in sin... If you violate God's commands, if you rebel against God and you experience no remorse, no sorrow, that's actually a very, very frightening place to be. In fact, Paul talks about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly grief. Worldly sorrow, you know, you, you're sorrow, maybe you're sorrowful because of the consequences or what you think may happen or maybe the embarrassment, maybe the shame, maybe you're not getting what you want and so you're sorry about that. That's worldly sorrow, but the Apostle Paul says that leads to death. Godly sorrow, which is a sense of revulsion over our own sin, a trust in the mercy of God. Um, we're just grieved by the fact we've sinned against God. That actually leads, according to the Apostle Paul, to repentance unto life. And so, you know, don't buy into this myth that there's no place for guilt in the Christian life. The Christian, now the Christian shouldn't deal with prolonged guilt or endless guilt or certainly self-hatred as we talked about last week. But guilt, conviction, remorse, godly sorrow, those are meant to drive us to repentance. There's another myth though that's just as dangerous I think. And that myth, or really that way of thinking, says that when we do sin, Jesus kind of pulls back from us. 
He withdraws from us. And when we have doubts, he kind of pulls back and lets us fend for ourselves. This is not true. Actually, a very damaging thing to think that about Jesus. To the contrary, Jesus delights in coming near to us when we have doubts. Even when we sin, he does not shrink back from us, but dare I say, he moves in even closer. At the point of our deepest shame, as Dane Ortland says, this is where we find that we experience the love of Jesus the most. He doesn't, lo- he doesn't love our sin, of course not. But neither does our sin push him away. He actually comes closer in a pursuing way, in a rescuing way, in a merciful way. Jesus doesn't condemn Peter. Even the phrase, oh, you of little faith, is not necessarily a rebuke. It's kind of an interesting, New Testament written in Greek, kind of an interesting Greek construct. It's, it actually, Jesus actually calls him, oh, little faith, or, or you could even say, oh, one of little faith. We've seen Jesus uses this phrase before in Matthew's gospel. It's a word, it's a, it's a combo that doesn't appear in any other ancient Greek literature. So it's a very unusual construct, as I mentioned. According to one scholar, Leon Morris, it doesn't appear in any of the classics, not in the Septuagint, any pre-Christian literature. It was a phrase we might say that was coined by Jesus. But it's not necessarily a negative thing. I have two friends who live in two different parts of the country. They don't know each other. Um, they've never met. Different, you know, different coasts. And they both, each one has a wife who's like between eight or ten inches shorter than he is. And each one calls his wife little one. So say so that's little one. Now, but the thing is, he's, he's not doing it in a mocking way. He's not saying, well, it really would have been nice had you grown a little bit more. You know, he's not ridiculing his wife. It's actually, believe it or not, you do believe it, it's a term of endearment. He's saying, this is, he says, little one. Now, I don't know if I would like that, if I were, you know, to me that might get annoying, but this is what he says over and over. Oh, this, oh come here, little one. Here's little one, little one, little one. Well, Jesus says, little faith, which actually I don't believe is a condemning thing at all. He's actually, in a way, not condemning, but actually commending Peter for the faith that he does have. Now, I can imagine a scene where Peter walks out to Jesus, Peter starts to sink, and he starts to panic, and Jesus says, as he descends into the water, well, come on, Peter. Do you really believe? Why don't you show me that you're worth saving? Why don't you show me that you have a genuine faith? And as Peter continues to go down, he's neck deep in the water. The water starts coming out of his nose. I can imagine a scene where Jesus says, well, look, find a way to believe. You must learn to trust me. And as Peter gasps for air, you know, the water nearing the top of his head, Jesus saying, are you willing to prove it to me in your everyday life that you truly believe? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus actually immediately, verse 31, reaches out his hand and he takes hold of him and he saves him. Now, here's our final point this morning. Jesus supernaturally rescues before he makes demands. As Frederick Dale Bruner says, Jesus saves somewhat tongue-in-cheek, he saves before he scolds. In other words, there's so many people that think that Christianity 
is really all about sort of getting our lives in order and, and getting our, our life in order in such a way that we can present ourselves rightly to Jesus. But the thing is, we never actually get to that point or, or anywhere near that point. Christianity is not about sort of getting ourselves cleaned up, you know, changing our behavior and then kind of coming to Jesus. In Jesus, we have a Savior that responds immediately to our cries for help, a Savior who doesn't ask that, we're show that, that we show Him that we're worthy of being saved before we come to Him. We can never be worthy of being saved. The message of the Bible is not God helps those who help themselves, but God rescues those who cannot contribute anything on their own. This is what the story of these two walks on a lake demonstrates. I love what one theologian says. He says, faith, the way Jesus wants us to relate to him, as important as it is, is not the theme of the story. Jesus' salvation of even weak in faith disciples is. And I read that and I thought about this particular statement that I've heard so many times in ministry, so many times over the years. Someone has said to me, I'm not, and I think it's a genuine heartfelt concern, which I get. Someone has said, I'm not sure if my faith is strong enough. What do I do if my faith is not strong enough? What do I do if my faith is not deep enough? And my answer is always the same. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. Jesus doesn't approach us with a measuring stick, evaluating how much we believe or how deep our faith really is. What he calls us to do is believe. And even in those times that we say, as the man said to Jesus in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What he calls us to do is believe that, that, that in Christ is the very presence of God, that he didn't come just to comfort us, but to save us from our sins, not just some generic sin of the world out there, but our own sin. He came, as the scriptures teach, to bring us to God by living for us, by dying for us. By being raised again for us on the third day, according to the scriptures, to die the death that we deserve, to be raised for the completion of our justification for those who believe. He didn't call us, he didn't come to call us to be better people. Although certainly there is growth and sanctification that happens among those that God makes alive. He called us to grab hold of him, sinking as we are, and to trust that he alone can deliver us. He can save us, He can forgive us, and He can make us whole. And as we've seen this morning, Jesus is patient and kind. Not coming to us with a performance improvement plan, but a rescue. Coming to us to rescue us. Not necessarily from the storms of this life. We don't want to draw the metaphor too far. Because we will go through storms. But He rescues us from the fear of death from enslavement to sin, from the condemnation, from, hit, from the wrath of a holy God, from sinking into the abyss. Jesus comes to reunite us, to restore us to God, to bring us to the place that even now He is preparing for us, where we will enjoy Him 
and we will delight in him and we will worship him and we will feast with him forever. The question is, how will we respond? Will we continue in our stubbornness? Will we insist that we know the way? Will we keep looking in a petrified, terrified way at the world around us? Or we trust in, rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one who is even now interceding for us, praying for us, ruling the world with power, and getting our place ready, so to speak. Let's pray. Father in heaven.